Um, Our reading is Jonah chapter 4. Jonah's anger at the Lord's compassion. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, this this is not what I said when I was still at home. This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are, you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending your calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. At dawn, the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind And the sun blazed at Jonah's head, so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have the right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend to it, or make it grow. It sprung up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh had more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? In our thoughts this evening, I want to uh, take us on a bit of an imaginary walk. I'd like you to come with me, if you will, out of those doors and down the street and out onto the Brighton Road and we're going to see who we're going to meet. You might feel you're a bit like one of these uh, charity muggers, commonly known as chuggers. Um, no, you won't be going out with a clipboard, you won't even have a Bible in your hand. Just you. And you're going to ask the first person you meet a question. Excuse me? Hello, yes. Good, you've got his tinctures, off you go. I wonder, can you help me? Can I ask you a question? Well, I'm not mastermind, mate. Okay, okay, it's not 20 questions, just just, just one. Okay. Um, can I ask you, are you familiar with any of the books of the Bible? With any of the stories? Well, I used to believe in that stuff. Well, I used to go to Sunday school. Are there any you can remember? Well, I knew there'd be a catch. Go on, give it a go. See what you can do. Well, there's that one about Adam and Eve, but no one believes that anymore. And uh, the one about the good guy who crosses over the road when he sees some bloke getting mugged, you know. Any more you can remember? Oh yeah, there's that one about the, the bloke who gets eaten by a giant fish. What was his name? Pinocchio? No, 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 Jonah. That's it, Jonah. Well, that's really interesting, and thank you for answering my question. We're going to try and find out a little bit more about Joan this evening. Do you want to come and join us? Okay, then why not? Thank you. Mm-hmm. 
You may have been puzzled by that little exchange, but two themes came out of that conversation. Much of the Bible, you see, is about stories, and you will have probably got the message from our readings this evening and what I've said previously, that I always like to look at the big picture and the context. You see, if you can remember the big picture, you can generally remember the story. It's like telling a story to a child. But there's other things that come out of this, and you might argue with me about uh, which particular stories the man in the street is off now, which particular stories the man in the street might actually come up with. But I think it's true to say, you know, we do still use this expression about Jonah. Um, I actually used it against my wife only a few days ago, and she was a bit puzzled that I, that I made the comment. But uh, we won't go there. But I think there's, there's three possible reasons about why stories like this sort of stick in our mind. And those reasons are because there's something perhaps difficult to understand or to accept in the story. And perhaps sometimes because the, the story itself and the moral in the story is perhaps counterintuitive. Think of the parables, you know, they're not what you would expect, are they? And there's also perhaps something that's a little bit unbelievable about the story. And that's where this story of Jonah came in and why it sort of continues to hang in our culture, I believe. So there must be something pretty important about Jonah, and I suggest very important, the fact that a story that originated in a time when we in this country were probably in the middle of the Bronze Age, and yet it's a story that has remained in the Bible all the way through. And you'd be right to expect that because of my own interests and responsibilities for mission in this place, that perhaps there is a bit of a mission theme here as well. Well, there is, because the story of Jonah is about a call to mission. But it's not exactly the sort of story that you would expect to start if you were trying to put a positive spin on mission, is it? <coughs> but I think there's actually much more to the Jonah story than simply, if God asks you to do something and you're not so keen and you run in the opposite direction then God's bound to catch up with you in the end. Think about why Jesus actually spent a lot of his time with the poor, the rejected, the outcast. Why he worked across political and religious and ethnic divides. And then just reflect on that reading, particularly that reading that we had this evening from Jeremiah 29. Because the context of that reading was the Jews living in a foreign country where they were very much uh, a minority. And a situation that some commentators have in fact suggested is not unlike the situation that we as Christians find ourselves in the 21st century. So perhaps we need to do a little bit of translation here. Perhaps we need to translate the words and the language that we use and isn't it strange, it's often your own family that are your toughest critics. And my eldest son, he often challenges me about words that we use like mission and evangelism, perhaps because he studied philosophy. And perhaps we do need to translate those words, mission, evangelism, outreach, into accepting people where they are, working alongside them, sharing with them. Perhaps there is a better language 
And I know it's a language that is not unfamiliar to many of us, and there is a lot of what we do. But I think the great leap is being able to translate to doing that when you're 8,000 miles away, when you're Laura in Haiti, or whether you're the Eagles in Mozambique, or your Chondos team working in Cambodia, or your Cali and George in Brazil. The people are exactly the same. And when you're there, you actually find that the situations are often very much the same. And it really hit me home when I was in Cambodia, because here is a country that you expect to be sort of 95% a Buddhist country, and Buddhism is very, very visible in society. And yet you see a thriving and growing Christian church. And I know many of you have seen these situations in many other countries around the world. I was very fortunate in the 1980s to have spent um, just a year, in fact, at university in Birmingham. And I was doing a master's degree in engineering. And a friend of mine attended a United Reformed Church that my wife Sue has made reference to before, which actually sits opposite uh, Winston Green Prison. And at that time in the 1980s, the minister of that church was a gentleman called Leslie Newbegin. Leslie Newbegin had left the UK about 40 years previously and gone off to India to be a missionary. And when he returned in the late 70s, he took up pastoral ministry again and in a church which had then become the United Reformed Church. And I heard him preach on a number of occasions, and perhaps at the time I didn't quite realise the significance of what I was um, listening to, and it was only much more recently that I had the opportunity to rediscover uh, Leslie Newbegin and his life and his thoughts. And I came across some striking words that he wrote about our friend Jonah, and I just want to read a couple of sentences. Leslie Newbegin writes, The story of Jonah that improbable missionary who tries to run away from the wicked city but is stopped in the traps by the Lord and ordered to go into the city to call it to repentance. The call meets with a fantastic response. But Jonah in the end is left thoroughly ambivalent in a thoroughly ambivalent position, not quite inside the city and not quite far from it, but sitting on the edge waiting to see what will happen caring more about himself than about the fate of the city. And that was why I wanted us to look again at that story that is so familiar to us. Jonah is such a short book, you know, four chapters. One more now, I read it on the bus between um, London Bridge, I haven't even got to St Paul's, and I'd, I'd read the whole book, it's that short. And if there's one thing you go home, you don't listen to me this evening, just go home and read that Jonah story again. And have a look in there and, and look for those messages about mission. Uh, because as I read it, I, I came across six or seven references to the way in which we should take on mission and the language that we should use and the things that we should do. And we haven't got time this evening to go through six or seven of those examples. But I've picked five, dare I say five, so I've broken all the rules, and I know you're supposed to have three points, well I've got five points this evening, so just bear with me, but I'll be very, very brief. But they are just so important. And the first point is about theology. And it's in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, because the opening words of, of the book of Jonah is, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Notice the parallel with John's Gospel. 
It's the core of our very understanding of human language, isn't it? The good news, the gospel. The word of the Lord should never be something that is complicated, something that the man in the street can't understand. It's got to be a story that we as Christians can communicate with him. You don't have to have a theology degree in order to explain your faith to the man on the street. This is why it's so important. There's three things I want us to think about in this context. In this 21st century world in which we live, there's clearly a, a great lack of knowledge about core Christian belief. And I think, you know, if, if it isn't your destiny to go to Mozambique, if it isn't your destiny to go to Haiti, then just make it your destiny that you can tell your story. I think that's the point number one. I think the second point is that if you think about theology as being something difficult and something that academic people do, you're overcomplicating it. You perhaps think that, okay, it's a bit like exams at school, you've got to do one exam and then you've got to do the next exam. It's like progressing up a stairway. And I'd like you to think of it more as being like a wheel. The good news sits at the centre of the wheel and the theology supports it with its spokes. And our life is what's on the outside. And maybe that, that image perhaps helps you just think a little bit more about the, whole, the way the whole thing sort of hangs together. We need to understand the whole story. And the third point is, in, in this 21st century world, and tragically, you know, we still keep hearing this expression, Arab Spring, don't we, as we see these news headlines. And yet, nearer to home, Look at our own political situation over the last 10, 20 years, how people have lost interest both with national politics and local politics, trying to get people involved in their community. It's so important, isn't it, that we as Christians uh, need to connect with our local communities. So as we think about theology, and if that's all sort of a bit difficult to sort of grasp, those of you that were here when we had that day with Chris Duffett, he gave us a little challenge in the afternoon before we went out onto the street about how to communicate your faith. And that was basically to write in six words your journey to faith. Just six words, so that you've got some starting point when you were having that conversation. Not six words that told a story that you were going to recite to the next person, but so that it was fixed in your mind, so that you could carry on that story. So again, if you want to go away with something this evening and you haven't done that little exercise, think about your journey to faith, the ups and downs, because the downs in your, in your life are just as important as the ups, aren't they? And then often it's the downs where you can actually communicate with that man sitting on the seat, with the lady that you meet on the train or has perhaps come back from the hospital for chemotherapy. You know, it's those conversations that you can have. So that was point number one. Point number two is about what I've called realisation. When God called Jonah to go to Nineveh the first time, Jonah ran in the other direction. Why do you think that happened? Well, we've looked at the map. The reader perhaps assumes it was out of fear. But the book of Jonah reveals that there was a lot of hostility between <coughs> Jonah and, of course, uh, the Assyrians and the Ninevites. Uh, the Jews themselves were in slavery in that part of the world. And in the second chapter, I know we didn't read it soon, but you can go read it later. 
In Jonah's prayer, he ends with these words. And this is why I didn't feel guilty about not having a New Testament reading this evening. Because right in the middle of the second chapter of Jonah are these words. Salvation is of the Lord. And isn't that the gospel message? The gospel message is there, right in the centre of the book of Jonah. When I was younger, I spent a lot of time travelling around the country, uh, particularly with my father, and um, travelling around by train, visiting. I've been on nearly every railway line in the country, you may think that's uh, a bit of a nerdish sort of thing to do, but I've seen most of the UK by train. And when I was much younger, this was my early teens, I spent a lot of time on railway stations, and, as you know, railway stations, they tend to have vending, vending machines. And there were three vending machines that have interested me. Ones that contain chocolate, ones that contain orange squash, and ones that contain milk. And I learned at a very early age that often when you put your money in, and it rattled down inside, the goods didn't come out of the bottom, did they? And my father taught me a little trick, and I don't encourage you to go and do this now because modern vending machines don't work like this. But the trick was you had to thump them, and if necessary, you actually had to get hold of the machine and shake its very foundations to get it to deliver the goods. And we have that expression, don't we? You know, the penny hasn't dropped. And I think that's probably where it sort of comes from. But the analogy doesn't quite work today because the vending machines have all gone electronic, and if it doesn't deliver the goods, you've had it. Why do I mention that story? Well, it's the realisation point, isn't it? The sad thing is that there's a lot of dormant Christians around. There's a lot of dormant Christians who aren't here in church this evening. I'm just so pleased you're here. But it's still possible for people to come along to church and to worship and to sing and to pray. But until the penny drops, until you connect with the person sitting next to you, until you connect with the man on the street, not a lot's really going to happen. It's all sort of internalised, isn't it? So, one way or another, the penny has got to drop in our lives. And just think what happens when that penny does drop. We call it revival. Just think what would happen if all 296 of our members were here this evening and the penny dropped and we went out on the streets on Monday morning and we had conversations, just had conversations about what we're doing in our lives, that we connected with those people as Christians. My third point is about communication. You've heard the mantra, it's not the message, it's all about communication. On the subject of mission and evangelism, some of us have been looking at a book recently called Sowing, Reaping and Keeping. And you'll probably hear more reference to this as time goes on because it may turn into a sermon series and possibly some house group material as well. And this whole process, the, the very simple process of a Christian life of sowing, reaping and keeping people in fellowship is just so important in what we do. And in the book of Jonah, we actually see the beginnings of that process. In Jonah chapter 4, chapter 3, verse 4, we read these words. It says, Jonah began to go into, city, into the city, going a day's journey. So it was a pretty big city. And he called out, yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So there was Jonah. He went out and he started communicating his message. 
But notice how little was in that message. He didn't make a great, well, as far as we know, he didn't make a great speech. He didn't preach a great sermon. Who knows what might not happen by those conversations that we have when we start communicating with other people. Who knows? The people of Nineveh were surprised. God changed his mind. He relented and he turned back from his fierce anger. And so we should not be surprised if things happen in our lives and in other people's lives once we start having conversations. And notice also that God, he isn't just like God of the Old Testament, just saying, you are my people and I am your God. He's a much more gracious God, a much more caring God. So perhaps the view of the God of the Old Testament that the man in the street has is perhaps quite a long way from the truth. So, the message of communication. My fourth point is about what I've called the urban gospel. Three times God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, and he actually calls Nineveh itself that great city. In chapter 1 verse 1, in chapter 3 verse 2, and chapter 4 verse 11. That great city. God puts in front of him the size of it. And Ellie reminded us in chapter 4 verse 11, Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, implying they do not know even God. So why was God so interested in this city of Nineveh? I think it's pretty obvious really. Big cities, even in those days, were huge stockpiles of people. Christians and churches, of course, need to be where there are people. But in general, if you go into large cities, if you go into London, there are far less churches than you would expect to find for the amount of people that are there. But the interesting thing, as new people come into communities, as people move into the UK, it is to cities that they often come first. It's where people move in society. Sadly, it's where the poor often congregate. It's also where students go to study and young people go to start their first jobs. So cities, you see, are actually the engine rooms of society. So now perhaps we see why God was so interested in these cities. And they weren't... Um, country sort of places, you know, perhaps stuck in the Bronze Age in that part of the world and not very literate people. As we have seen, it was a very literary and educated world in which they lived. Now you may say to me, well Horsham's not a big city, is it? Well, you know, it's quite a large town and we've got quite a diverse community, haven't we? And I'm delighted that over the last few months, over the last few years, We've had quite a few number of new people who have come into us from other countries, from other, other cultures, and have actually come along to join, to worship with us. And I think that's really good. So it's so important, isn't it, that the church connects with the community, with the urban community that it's part of. And my final point is what I'm calling a transformational relationship. I don't watch a lot of films because I tend to find films, they're a little bit boring sometimes because they all tend to sort of follow the same sort of pattern, particularly American films. And you, whenever you start watching an American film, whatever disaster it is, 
You always know how it's going to end. You know the music that's going to be coming, the drama, the heavenly voices singing the anthem, the flag waving, you know, the president making a speech. It's a really, really great ending. Strangely, the book of Jonah doesn't have that sort of ending. It needs a sequel, doesn't it? Well, it doesn't. Because the sequel to Jonah's story was actually Jeremiah 29 that Christine read to us at the beginning of the service. Because that was addressed to that same context of here was a group of Jews who had been taken into slavery and were living in a different place, in a culture and a country that was strange to them. So perhaps, you know, Christians represent something less than 10% of the population of the portion. We're actually very, very much in uh, a minority situation. And the challenges for them are actually the challenges the same for us. And in Jeremiah 29, God challenges those Jews to use the resources and the experiences that they have to make that city a truly a very great place for everyone, both believers and unbelievers. It's not sort of a calculated sort of plan thing. It's about relationships. And here was God asking people to go and work alongside and build relationships with a group of people who had actually destroyed their homeland. It's really astonishing, isn't it, that God asked Jonah to go to a pagan city. And it's not surprising that you know, Jonah was a little bit reluctant to go. And you can imagine how cross he was, how angry Ellie sounded when she read that reading of Jonah chapter 4. He must have been pretty upset that he'd been set up. And he sat there probably up on the hillside looking down thinking, what's my life come to? And part of that journey, as I said, receiving a service is about a journey. Part of that journey is very much of a journey, isn't it? He jumped on a boat and he was sailing somewhere, we assume, westwards across the Mediterranean Sea. And a storm brews up, and it's not, you know, not the only time a storm brews up in the Bible, in the Mediterranean Sea. We're not going to go there this evening. But it was in that storm that it actually challenged Jonah about his relationship with God. But the strange thing was, it was also those pagan sailors on that ship who also recognised Jonah's relationship with his God. And as we know, Jonah went over the side of the boat and the storm abated and presumably the sailors survived. And finally Jonah does change his mind, doesn't he? And he goes off to, to Nineveh. So where does this all get us to? Well, as I've suggested already, this Jonah story is a picture of the church's problem in our postmodern world. If I can really be blunt, I suspect that inside sometimes we really don't like working with perhaps, can I say it, unwashed pagans. Um, Jonah went to a city that he really didn't like. He was asked to go and speak to people that he found it really difficult to communicate with. People he found difficult to develop a relationship with. Likewise, we don't really like the postmodern world, do we? 
we create our own subculture of church and church life. And a lot of things that we do, although we perhaps badge them as being mission and evangelism, we actually appeal to people to come and join us in what we're doing in our subculture, rather than perhaps trying to connect with people in their culture where they are. I don't think Chomlo realised the serious situation that the centre is in currently, um, about to continue when he was here. But on a number of occasions, um, several of us ate at the centre, and one of the things that uh, Chomlo said whilst he, he sat there in the centre was that this is the church, 24 by 7, in the high street. It was so obvious to him that this was where the church needed to be. And it sparked a thought in his mind that in Cambodia, what he needed to be thinking about was, and he's not strange, he's not doing it at the moment, is how he can build up a volunteer culture in Cambodia. People don't volunteer, they expect to be paid to do things, so you have to employ people to do things. But also it sparked a thought in his mind as the words came out of his mouth, why shouldn't his services be available 24 hours a day? Now, I'm not suggesting to Doug that he needs to start opening the centre 24 hours a day, but I thought that was just an amazing spark of inspiration that, you know, things like the centre that could so easily slip from our grasp could actually be the future of what we call church. And I return to what Leslie Newbegin said, and I read previously. I'm just going to read it again. Is this where the church can stay? Half in, half out. More concerned about itself than about the city. The end of the book of Jonah leaves us in no doubt, does it? Jonah may not care, but God cares deeply. Even for the dumb animals in the schools. Centuries after Jonah... There was another sleeper in the storm. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus, of course, was stuck in a boat in a storm. And he was surrounded by his disciples who, like the sailors, were understandably terrified. And in exactly the same way, they woke him up and said, Don't you care? Do something or we'll drown. So Jesus waved his hand, calmed the sea, and everybody was saved. So for all the similarities between Jonah and Jesus, the two stories are actually very different in the end. Whereas Jonah, you see, was sacrificed and thrown to the storm so the sailors could be saved, Jesus wasn't sacrificed to the waves. But of course now we see on the cross, Jesus was thrown into the real storm. He went under and was drowned in order that we could be saved. And it's in that that we remember and we celebrate with him eating and drinking at his table this evening.